Tonight's talk is called Forgiveness, the Most Tender Part of Love. There's no question but that by doing this practice, we touch into the deepest wounding in our psyche, the deepest places of pain, suffering. And it can happen as we practice that we have memories come up from the past of unresolved conflict. Or we remember things that we did or said in our lives that we deeply regret, that we're still holding on to in some way the conflict of those moments. These memories arise spontaneously, unprompted. It's not as if we call to mind all of the things we did in the past or all of the injustice that we've experienced. But they tend to just pop up spontaneously. And they reveal to us these places where we are still caught, are still holding on. And this is part of the purification that Joseph spoke about last night. This process that gets triggered by sitting here silently. As these memories, these moments where we remember something from the past or we are hard on ourselves for something we've done or said, to really open to these places, forgiveness becomes essential. That willingness to honor what's happened, to recognize, to accept, and to let go in a way that allows us to move open-heartedly into this moment. Essential as it may be, it can be deeply challenging, taking us really to that edge where it feels unacceptable, unbearable, where we don't feel that we we have the capacity to let go. I can't. I won't. It's painful. And only the greatest tenderness will help us to enter into this terrain of our hearts and minds. It's where we need a steady hand, a gentle hand, and this feeling of tenderness to even begin to bear witness to some of the suffering that we hold deep within us. We find the courage to do so through our practice, through feeling the brutality that happens when we hang on or identify with hatred. This becomes illuminating. We feel how painful it is to shut our hearts down. We feel how when we do this, we suffer.
it happens that the places where we are most tightly bound are the places that there's enough energy, enough, um, almost like a rub that wakes us up, that if we can bring our practice to these places, it can be the place that we find freedom. I'd like to share with you an enlightenment poem from a nun who lived in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Muta. And um, Muta was born into a very poor Brahmin family. She was confined within her family's poverty by the custom of having to marry within one's own caste system. And so she was married to a hunchbacked Brahmin through the arrangements of her family. And this marriage turned out to be a very unhappy marriage. And then finally, one day, she was able to convince her husband that it would be good if she could ordain as a nun. And he agreed to this. Something quite striking in her poem is that she attributes her freedom to be free by means of, by means of that which had been an oppression to her. So it really shows us of this possibility of that which weighs so heavily on our chest being a place, a means, a vehicle to liberation. So this is her enlightenment song. Free, I am free. I am free by means of the three crooked things, mortar, pestle, and my crooked husband. I am free from birth and death and all that dragged me back. Resting in the possibility that the places where we feel this excruciating pain, where we harbor anger, rage, resentment, that by bringing kindness, care, mindfulness to these places, that this can be our vehicle for liberation. The process of forgiveness, when we enter into it, is a very personal process. And like metta, loving-kindness, it can never be pushed. We can never hasten it along. It really requires a deep honesty, looking, an honoring of the process. because it does take us to our edge. Because of this, we need great patience with the process, and a patience that is imbued with loving-kindness, tenderness, gentleness. Patience itself has the capacity to stay steadfast in the presence of difficulty or adversity. I loved what uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said, the the quote that Joseph uh, gave last night, where he referred to 
patience as grace. And when we hold it in the context of forgiveness, it can be the grace that helps us to hold that which seems unbearable. The patience that we need in working with forgiveness is to honor our process, which at times will be honoring the rage that emerges before true forgiveness is possible. We need to respect our suffering and our own capacity to open to it. How tender can we be with the rage that we sometimes experience? Our practice gives us the tools to work with this rage, both in bringing our full attention to the experience, bringing mindfulness to the experience, being able to witness this suffering, and also being able to recognize when it's enough, when we need to turn our attention somewhere else, where we really can't work skillfully anymore with this anger or rage. In these moments to learn when it's becoming overwhelming, that we don't have to push, we don't have to force, that we can be gentle in these moments taking refuge in the simplicity of being with the breath, taking refuge in opening to hearing, or maybe it's taking refuge in doing metta practice, or sometimes reflecting on an aspect of the teachings that gives us courage, that inspires us, that helps us to be at peace. Honesty being so essential. Remembering to notice when it seems enough. You know, I know for years and years, and probably still at times still do it, where I think mindfulness is going to be the only tool I need. And yet, in those moments, mindfulness might be, not be strong enough because there's so much reactivity. But learning to protect the mind at these times. What can we do? Where can we turn the mind where we will find balance again? It isn't a sign of failure. The loving kindness that patience is imbued with will help us to enter this process with that tenderness, gentleness. It will help us to soften when we experience the anger, the rage, or when we feel deadened. Often around incidents, around um, these past constrictions, we first come into contact with the deadening of the heart. And when we experience this, it's to touch it Gently, 
tenderly. Not to be caught up in the brutality of the judging mind, but really just that honest recognition and acceptance of this experience. And through our practice, we really come to see that we have no choice but to do this. To do anything else will just take us into more and more suffering. It's not uncommon that we relate to forgiveness as being a sign of weak or submissive. And yet this is really far from the truth. Mahatma Gandhi once said, The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. When we're lost in delusion, it often has the appearance that if we retract or pull our hearts away from someone when they anger us, that it is empowering. And this is really through not seeing clearly, not seeing how painful this is. There's a line that I love from Mark Twain uh, where he describes forgiveness as being the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. The fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. It speaks to me of the strength of forgiveness. That it's not so tangible And yet, it's so powerful and really permeates experience when it's present. Has a hugely transformative quality in those moments where we've had the capacity to forgive. We've we've probably clearly seen this. How our own hearts turn around. It has the possibility of uh, really affecting deeply other people and sometimes beyond what we would even imagine. Desmond Tutu once said a line that also touches into the strength of forgiveness. He said, Forgiveness is taking seriously the awfulness that has happened when you were treated unfairly. And many of us have been treated what seems unjustly or unfairly in our lives. But when we react in that place, we perpetuate the cycle of suffering. So to really take seriously, to really take to heart the awfulness that has happened is to develop a wise relationship, a relationship rooted in wisdom, rather than perpetuating anger, revenge, or retaliation. We need to relate in a way that we're not constantly festering old wounds. We need to delve into the very roots of anger themselves. 
And we really do this not just for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings. When you look at anger in the world, it's like it has a dominoes effect. One person gets angry, dumps it on another. Another person is riled up by that, turns around and dumps it on another and another and another. And, you know, it just has this rippling effect. And when we can have that capacity to forgive, it's like the buck stops here. No, we aren't just falling in, caving into that whole cycle. And, you know, if you picture in that in your own mind, it is so empowering. I read uh, what was a, a t- touching story to me about a young woman named Sharmetta. Um, she was 17 years old when she was attacked and so badly beaten that her mother could only recognize her feet. And her boyfriend was murdered. Her attacker was in jail serving a 40 to 60 year prison term. However, Sharmetta says that if it were in her power, she would set him free. She says, if I was graced enough to have a second chance, then why shouldn't I give somebody else one? Some people say that I am crazy, but if I had the power, I would let him out today. True forgiveness is unconditional. He is a human being. He made a mistake. It means it's over. You let go and live on. Now a happily married mother with a great job, Sharmetta says, forgiving Corey has has given her control over her own life. I can remember a time when I couldn't let go and live. I was so angry and mad at the world that I locked everybody out. I even locked myself out. I made the biggest decision ever when I decided to let go of hate, anger, and misery and forgive. And doing that, I am the hero in my own life. Becoming the hero in our own lives. Yet, no matter how deep our intellectual understanding of this is, it is very challenging. Now, even as I put this talk together tonight, reflecting on a few places where I have held tension, pain, and where I have to recognize that at times there still is this no, where there is this need for patience. It will never be possible for us to forgive if we think our forgiveness represents a suppression or passivity in the face of abuse or violence. It is necessary for us to touch into the freedom and empowerment of forgiveness, to know of its strength, how we are reclaiming our hearts, how we are freeing our energy, and how we have this capacity within ourselves, to let go and to move on. How nobody has the capacity to keep us from being happy and free.
So please remember that as I speak about forgiveness, I'm not wanting to diminish in any way the atrocities in the world, the seeming injustice. But I am wanting to point towards the healing energy that is possible and necessary so that we can reclaim our hearts. I think that earlier in this course, at some point, I mentioned that as a teenager, I experienced a lot of blame, anger, rage at feelings of injustice and felt very helpless in the face of the state of the world. I didn't have any sense of real possibility of what I could do because I found that my own response was also rooted in this anger, blame, rage. I felt, it seemed I was caught in a brutality. And that brutality was perceived as being outside myself. And then it was many years later, when I was sitting on my cushion, and there was released in my own mind stream a torrent of this rage. It was really such a painful time in my own practice. Everything triggered me. You know, it didn't matter what happened. I went into blame, anger, um, fear, disappointment, sadness. It was just this tumbling roll of these really unpleasant mind states. And it lasted for a very long time. And prior to that time, I had thought of myself as being a reasonably kind person. And then, you know, wow, it was painful. You know, and I could recognize that these were the same seeds of anger that fueled all of the wars, crime, violence around me. It was really shocking. It really was cause for reflection. And it was also a huge turning point. I stopped blaming the world and really looked within. And it was very humbling. It really demanded that I feel the pain of carrying bitterness in my heart. I could no longer condemn those around me that I perceived were starting wars, doing all these horrible things in the world, because I could see these seeds within my own mind. And we need to stop these wars within our own minds, because they are the seeds of so much violence, and they keep us in bondage. Out of this encounter, or this scene of these mind states, this mind stream, there also came a growing sense of compassion that seemed like for the first time, seeing people do hurtful things, I could touch into how deep their suffering was, what their mind might feel like in that moment knowing that the pain that I was experiencing 
was very similar to what they must be experiencing. There came another turning point when I began to see the possibility of continuing to honor love in the face of anger. And I really feel like I'm still very much a beginner at this. But to know that when someone confronts me with anger, I don't have to simply respond that way. That I can touch into the capacity of my own heart to love in those moments. I know that this was first shown to me by another person. Where, you know, when I was once saying something that was really hurtful and filled with anger, and that person didn't take it personally. And they, they weren't reactive at all. And then I could just see what I'd done, what I'd said. It was like this piece of yuck sitting in the middle of the room. And it was such a, a learning for me to see that. It was such a strong mirror. And each time that we don't take anger personally, we open up this possibility. And in doing so, I had another experience where, you know, somebody who had been a big trigger for a lot of stuff throughout my whole life, and one day this person again really quite violently attacked me. And in that moment, for whatever reasons, I didn't take it personally. And it turned around a relationship that had been just loggerheads for so long. The relationship really changed from that day onwards. And I'd like to share a story by a woman named Kate O'Neill, and this comes out of a, a book called Buddhist Acts of Compassion. In the early 1990s in Boston, I met on occasion with a Vietnamese Buddhist Sangha. Their temple was near a large beige brick housing development, and what had once been a basketball court for the neighboring development, was now the parking lot for the temple. One day their offices were broken into, and a computer was stolen, and their temple was vandalized. A leader of the Vietnamese Sangha was interviewed on television. As he gazed steadily into the camera, he said simply, I'm trying to look more deeply to understand why these people came and stole from us. Yes, I would like our computer back, but mostly I wish to speak to these thieves to see if there is something that we have done. Perhaps they want their basketball court back. His compassionate attitude had an amazing ripple effect in the community. His looking deeply opened opened up a way beyond crime and punishment, beyond violation and retribution. It was amazing to see him speak like this on the evening news. The leader did eventually talk with the young men who broke into the Vietnamese temple, and the computer was returned. The community did not press criminal charges. Instead, they arranged for the young men to have access to their basketball court part of the time. Our habits of reacting are so strong, but when we can look deeply, it can have benefits far beyond what we thought possible. Really breaking this chain.
we may have found that our metta, loving-kindness practice, is triggering some of these little grudges that we hold, some of these resentments that we harbor in our hearts. Practice first being just to simply acknowledge this, to open to it, and then from the place of wisdom, letting go. There's a story about two former prisoners of war who met several years later. And one asked the other, Have you forgiven your captors? And the other replied, No, never. And then the first prisoner looked at his friend with total kindness and said, Well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? So long as we're holding this resentment in our hearts, we're still imprisoned by these events. We need to realize that we have the key to our own prisons. We have the power to reclaim our hearts. So our practice, becoming one of forgiveness, touching into our deepest pain, releasing, relinquishing this suffering through letting go. Remembering that to do so means that we're not condoning the actions of others, but we're not succumbing to the great burning fire of rage and the loss of our own dignity. Compassion really helps us to be able to forgive. Where we can touch into this suffering that another person may be feeling, or touching into the suffering that we're experiencing. I had a very good example of this in my own experience, where it was again somebody who had in the past triggered a lot of anger. Um, And I met this person. And at first when I met them, I found that if I could really feel their pain, it helped me to stay open. It helped me to stay present, available to them. Then, after some time, I once again got triggered, and the aversion crept in. As soon as I recognized that, it was amazing to see what happened, having known of this capacity of touching into their suffering. As soon as I saw the aversion, the mind immediately tuned in again to their pain, their suffering. And instantly, the aversion was dispelled. When I could really hold them in my hearts and see them as a human being. So this quality of empathy helps us to touch into the compassion needed to forgive others, to forgive ourselves. And with others, when we can really step into their shoes, you know, and sometimes really needing to reflect on what their life is like, what they're subject to in their lives. 
how in order to act in this way, how they must have been hurt in their own lives. A while ago, I was uh, putting together this talk on forgiveness. And um, at that time, friend Rob, who was on staff here, some of you might remember, lived here. And so I asked him, I said, do you have any stories about forgiveness? And, you know, he kind of thought for a moment, and he says, no, not really. And he says, well, you know, this one. I said, uh, he has this dog named Max, and Max is uh, quite a delightful being and kind of uh, obstinate, stubborn, and bullheaded at other times. <laughs> um, Max sometimes doesn't like to be told what to do. So um, Rob was saying that... Um, uh, He said that he forgives Max over and over again because he sees that Max is like everyone else, simply doing the best that he can. And that love is stronger than anger. Remembering that as human beings, we all, even though it seems like we don't at times try, but we're just doing the best that we can. And it's not easy to be a human being. And I think as we practice, we really get a sense of how difficult it is to be a human being. And from there, compassion, tenderness, holding ourselves other holding others and ourselves with this tenderness. Remembering it's not a place we can push. You know, if we have um, idealistic donations in our mind, it will become painful. That will become brutal to ourselves. And it's really an honoring of where we're at in the process. Remembering, too, that um, it's not passive, that It's an active participation on our part. The active being really meeting and responding to the situation. Sometimes we might notice that we have a tendency to want to forgive too quickly where something happens, and rather than really opening to that, we want to say the words of, I forgive you. And it's not the honest situation. It's where we're brushing off because we don't want to feel the pain. So again, really needing to develop an honesty with ourselves.
Forgiveness is very much like metta in that, that it's not based on results. Sometimes in our lives we'll find that uh, outward reconciliation is possible, and at other times it may not be. And so it's really learning to work with what comes up in our own experience and learning to have the wisdom to know when it may be skillful to say something and when it simply has to be let go of. You know, sometimes in our lives we won't have the opportunity. It may be death, it may be distance. And so we really work with it just within ourselves. And sometimes it will be in the form of asking for forgiveness. I think it's a wonderful practice that's in this tradition. In the metta practice the other day, I introduced it at the beginning of the sitting. And just to remember, it is a practice that we can fall upon when our hearts feel bound, tight, holding on to something from the past. And I want to put out a caution here because it's something I've encountered in my own experience where we become um, kind of caught in our own form of uh, meditation practice that serves us in many ways but can become quite um, limited in it in an unhealthy way. And for me, how I've experienced that is where when things happen... I will often process in myself deeply my own anger, resentment, whatever. And I let it go at that. And I I don't have at times the courage to face another, to ask for forgiveness or to be vulnerable. And it's really becoming evident to me that that step can be so helpful. And just to say that while you're sitting here on retreat, please do just stay with your own process. (laughs) It's not a time to be asking forgiveness of your neighbors around you, but really to stay with it. But when there is that appropriate moment to have the courage to speak skillfully and to do the best that we can as human beings... In working with forgiveness in my own life, there's no question that I find the hardest person to forgive myself. That many times, long after I've forgiven other people, I'm still harboring um, anger and resentment or feelings of ill will towards myself. There's a story that deeply inspires me around the possibility of forgiving oneself. And it's the story about Angulimala. Uh, Angulimala who lived in the time of the Buddha and before meeting the Buddha was a serial killer. That Angulimala, out of a... um, uh, a devotion to his master prior to the Buddha, who had instructed him to go out and bring back a thousand human little fingers from the right hand. Um, And Gulimala had set about doing that. And he'd reached the point 
where he had killed 999 people. He had 999 little fingers on his garland. He only needed one more to make it a thousand. So he was set to get this little finger. And what he would do is he would be out in the forest, and when people would come by, he would murder them. So one day he was sitting out in the forest, and the person who was approaching was his mother. And it said that um, to kill your mother is one of the worst things that you can do, and that will lead to rebirth in the hell realms. The Buddha, with his eye of omniscience, saw this. He saw the terrible thing that Angulimala was about to do. He saw the great suffering that this would lead to. And he also saw that Angulimala had the capacity to liberate, to free his mind. And so, through these psychic powers, he traveled 30 miles to prevent this from happening. He appeared before Angulimala's mother came. Angulimala decided to kill this monk that he saw approaching. He decided that he would take the life of this monk. And so he went off in pursuit of the Buddha. The Buddha, through his own powers, was able to make it appear as if he was only walking. And Angulimala found that he had to run faster and faster and faster to keep up with him. And then finally Angulimala called out to the Buddha, Stop, recluse, stop. And the Buddha replied, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings. But you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. And it's said on hearing these words, Angulimala had a great change of heart come over him. He realized who the Buddha was. And he realized that the Buddha had come to the forest to prevent him from doing this one more horrific act. And he was very moved to the roots of his being. And he pledged himself to a life of nonviolence. And Angulimala went on to become fully liberated. But it's said that his decision to become a monk wasn't so easy for him, or his life as a monk wasn't so easy. It is said that he had to continually work with patience in his practice, because for some time um, it was very difficult, and his past thoughts haunted him. So I'd like to share this story, this story of his relinquishing of his suffering, as was told by Rafe Martin. Then Angulimala roused himself and raised a great determination, pushing his mind on and on, and he allowed it to settle nowhere. He refused to give in to agony or to seek refuge in hope, fear, or grief. The awful memories came again, and he let them go, 
Visions of his childhood of rippling laughter, running water, sunlight on flowers, a stream of sweet images flowed through his mind, and he clung to nothing. Moment by moment, he continued patiently on, enduring all. And suddenly, all his pain vanished, and his doubting, seeking mind lay shattered. For a timeless instant, he knew the taste of Nibbana and the fruit of the Buddha's path. It is it's said that he did die a violent death, but at the time of his death, his mind remained unperturbed. He had that unshakability in his mind. Being able to forgive oneself to this depth, to be able to let go of the way we hold ourselves so painfully at times. Sometimes we hold within ourselves the idea that when we become perfect, then we will be able to love ourselves. And I once had a great lesson from a Zen master around this. It was the very first retreat that I did with Hogan-san, the Zen master that gave me my name. And he introduced me to the practice of Zen koans. And he described a koan as being the ultimate question, which in itself is an answer by which one can cut off one's own karmic ego head and be born anew. And the first day that he gave a koan, I was very excited And so I went and I sat with the koan. And then at one point, bingo, the answer came. And it happened to be at a time where one could go, uh, the the interviews weren't scheduled, there was just interview periods. So you could go and have a mind-to-mind meeting with the Zen master. So I wanted to go and share my answer with him. So I went in the room and I gave him my answer. And as I gave him the answer, he got a very puzzled look on his face. And, and he said, what was the koan? And so I told him what the koan was. And he said, I never gave that koan. That's not what I said. <laughs> I felt a little sheepish, <laughs> a little embarrassed, and just kind of bowed and left the room. And so the next day he gave another koan. And when he gave this koan, it was so profound. You know, I just heard it. And I was awestruck. And here was this new practice that you know, I just wanted to fully embrace. So there I was sitting with this koan. And then time passed. It was a while later. And suddenly, you know, as we suddenly wake up in practice, suddenly woke up and went, oh, koan, koan. What was that koan? You know, and again, it happened to be an interview period. So you know, I'm sitting there feeling, oh my God, what is it? And I couldn't come up with it as hard as I tried. So I went and lined up again. And then, you know, it came my turn. I bowed and sat in front of him. And I, um, I told him that I'd forgotten the koan. And so at that point, he kind of just subtly rolled his eyes and said, just go and sit. Sit perfectly. And so I was receptive in that moment. I thought, go and sit perfectly. 
And then, you know, it kind of baffled me a bit. So I said, I said to him, you know, you've just given me a future. And he was like, huh? <laughs> given you a future? How did I do that? And I said, well, you know, if I'm going to go and sit perfectly, it's going to take some time. <laughs> and then suddenly there was this, just these two brown eyes. And they were just blazing holes into me. And he said, Perfection now! (laughs) I bowed and left the room. (laughs) We don't have to wait to become perfect. We don't have to wait to love ourselves until we become this ideal being that never does anything wrong. We can simply love ourselves just as we are, with all of our perceived imperfections. I came across a poem today, and I wish I could tell you who wrote it, but it um, spoke to me. You know, whenever I look at forgiveness, it really makes me vulnerable. I, I you know, touch into many different things, and this poem just seemed to speak to me. If you would grow to your best self, be patient, not demanding, accepting, not condemning, Nurturing, not withholding. Self-marveling, not belittling. Gently guiding, not pushing and punishing. For you are more sensitive than you know. Mankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure endure agonies, but we open fully only to warmth and light, and our need to grow is fragile as a fragrance, dispersed by storms of will, to return only when these storms are still. So accept, respect, attend your sensitivity. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. sensitivity, this tenderness, honoring it, honoring yourselves, honoring all life. I'd like to end tonight with a quote that... um, I heard at a very potent time in my own life when I was struggling with forgiveness. It was, uh, I had an incident right before I went on a one-month self-retreat where I'd had quite a horrible interaction with somebody 
and it uh, was left with not a good feeling. So I went on this retreat, and it was in a very beautiful setting, very peaceful, and finding a, a wonderful place to practice in. And there was many times when I would be sitting very, very peacefully, and then suddenly a memory of what had happened would come up. And when it would arise, I'd find myself so caught in the story again. I'd start reliving it, blaming, feeling so justified in my anger. And, you know, it was just getting caught over and over again. And then I came across this quote from Ajahn Chah. And when I read it, it immediately had a calming effect on me. And it gave me a much larger larger perspective to hold it in. So from Ajahn Chah, if someone curses us and we have no feelings of self, that the incident ends with the spoken words and we do not suffer. If unpleasant feelings arise, we should let them stop there, realizing the feelings are not us. He hates me. He troubles me. He is my enemy. A practitioner does not think like this, nor does one hold views of pride or comparison. If we do not stand up in the line of fire, we do not get shot. If there is no one to receive it, the letter is sent back. Moving gracefully through the world, not caught in evaluating each event, a practitioner becomes serene. This is the way of nibbana, emptiness, and freedom. In our forgiveness, following the way of nibbana, emptiness, and freedom. Having the courage to touch tenderly these places of suffering. Really staying true to our own hearts. That truth within that we so deeply long for. So let's sit for a moment. May any goodness that arises from our practice be freely offered for the releasing of suffering and the liberation of all beings everywhere.
This talk was given by Maya Shin Kelly at Insight Meditation Society on October 16, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.